Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. From MaximumFun.org and NPR, it's Bullseye. First up on the show this week, I am thrilled to welcome two of my all-time favorite recording artists, Big Boy and Sleepy Brown. You probably already know Big Boy. He's half of the legendary rap duo Outkast. He's also a brilliant and prolific solo artist. He's been on our show before. Sleepy Brown doesn't need that much introduction either. He's a veteran singer, songwriter, and producer. With his team Organized Noise, he helped produce about half of Outkast's records. Oh, and besides that, they co-wrote and produced what might be one of the most iconic songs of the 90s. Sleepy Brown is also a singer. That's him on Outkast's monster single, The Way You Move. He's worked with Tupac and Jay-Z, Ludacris, even Sly and the Family Stone, and Curtis Mayfield. Sleepy Brown and Big Boy have been close pretty much their entire adult lives, so it made sense when last year they announced they'd recorded an album together. The Big Sleepover dropped in December of last year. I've been bumping it in my car pretty much every day since. Maybe not every day, but real close to it. It is a great record. Let's kick things off with a track off the album. This one is The Big Sleep Is Over. The definition of up and coming. I'm hitting the ground running like a that ain't never had nothing. They microwaving and I'm out the damn oven so food yeah. is quality over quantity still and we'll kill any on the field player. We have nothing else to prove. We have nothing else to Big Boy Sleepy Brown, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Yeah, what's Thank up, you. man? Thank so you. Long. Great to be here. I went back and read this oral history of the Dungeon family that was in Creative Loafing, an alternative newspaper in Atlanta, maybe 15 years ago it ran. I don't know. It was a long time ago. Right. And... I had forgotten about Big Boy, you and Andre auditioning for Organized Noise. I think maybe I'm trying to remember where the scene was. You probably remember better than I. But the the detail in the story, maybe Rico Wade said it, that I, that I liked the best was that both of you had bald heads and <laughs> huaraches, huaraches on your feet. Mexican sandals on your feet. <laughs> <laughs> hey, overalls. They have the overalls. Oh, for real? Yeah. Where they did they have shirts on underneath the overalls? That's what I want to know, Sleepy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they did. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So you, by by the time Outcast auditioned for you, uh, Sleepy, you'd been in Organized Noise, the production group that produced the first Outcast record and, and lots of other Outcast and Dungeon Family stuff. Right for a little bit. Right. Were you looking for rappers? Like how'd they end up how they end up in front of you? Okay. Well, you know, um uh, I started 
you know, me and Rico started, well, me, Rico, and Ray, excuse me, started Organized Noise together, and um, we were producing groups. Uh, we had a group called PA that we were working with, with Pebble Tone, which was Pebble's record label. And after that project, basically, you know, Rico wanted to work with another rap group. So the story is that the guys heard a tape that we had over a friend's house and heard some instrumental work that we were doing and were very interested in meeting us. So this girl actually named Bianca that worked with Rico, uh, went to school with Big and Dre, and uh, she would, you know, like for a week, she would just be like, Rico, I really need you to meet these guys. These guys are really cool. You got to meet them. You got to listen to them, please. And he was like, you know, at first he was listening, but then, you know, all of a sudden he was like, all right, cool. Just tell them to come on up here because we were all up there. And, uh, dude, as soon as they walked up there, we were like, okay. Like, cause, you know, first of all, when you said the ball heads, no young dude was kicking a ball head then. Nobody, except for Jordan, that was it. <laughs> Nobody at high school was kicking ball heads. So when they came up there with ball heads, that intrigued me off the head. I was like, whoa. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, that's different. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, once they rap for us and we got a chance to really know them, we fell in love with them, man. They could just, instead of coming to the dungeon every other day, they started staying at the dungeon. <laughs> and uh, we just got to work, man. So, you know, um, I, you know, Rico, I'm going to say this, Rico knew more than I knew about what he felt about them. You know what I mean? I was just following Rico to tell you the truth and be like, okay, well, cool. You know, if you feel them like that, let's do it. You know what I'm saying? But as we started working together, I really started seeing the talent in them. And it was like, yeah, these boys are insane. You know what I mean? And they were so eager to learn and try to figure out, you know, this whole rap game and, and producing and everything, writing and all that. So it was a perfect combination, man. How old were you, big boy? Uh, 16. The two things that were described in that piece about the verses that you did were that you were rapping over a tribe called Quest Beat and yep. that you both just went on and on and on and they were wondering if you would ever stop rapping. Yeah, 30 yeah. minutes a piece. Yeah, it was, it was, it was crazy. Uh, Big Gip from the Goody Mob had a, a Burgundy Zuzu Trooper and we had the West Scenario remix, a uh, tribe called Quest uh, Scenario remix, the cassette, and we just popped it in and then we just just on, on the curb, right in front of the beauty supply store, just yep. just went crazy. Like the single, yep. so there was an instrumental yep. on one side. Yep, yep, exactly. <laughs> the single, <laughs> the single. Right? I heard that in a long time. <laughs> you weren't rapping over rah rah <laughs> like nah, a dungeon nah, dragon. No, it, 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 nah, it was a don't no 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 no. Yeah, that one. Remix. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah. What do you remember being struck by besides the bald heads, Sleepy? At that time, it was just their style. You know, the bald heads, the overalls, the shoes. You know, it was so different that, you know, because we were different. You know what I'm saying? Back in Organized Noise days, man, we had finger waves and perms and stuff. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, it was it was a trip. So for us to see them like that at a time when it really wasn't popular to do that was, you know, an eye catcher for me. Like I said, you know, once they, uh, once I really got to know them, and you know, especially Big and hearing where his, uh, his ear was at with music, because both of us Aquarius and we have that, that weird music thing, man. Where we listen to anything, we like all types of music. So I liked them for that, and then 
basically when he wrote that hook on what you call it, claiming true on that first album, I was like, oh yeah, he's true. Yeah, I mean, you got to think how courageous it was and how much confidence you got to have in your face to shave your head. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> to be so young and handsome and shave your head, like it's all about your face and your eyebrows. All about your face and eyebrows. Barely had a mustache. <laughs> Didn't have a mustache. Yeah, man. <laughs> no, uh-uh. Big Boy, let's really? pretend that that's why I shave my head, okay? Let's just say it's because I have so much confidence in my face. Yeah, right. No yeah. other reasons. Yeah. No other reason at all. Yeah. For sure. More to come with Big Boy and Sleepy Brown, two actual legends. In just a minute, Sleepy Brown's dad was also a professional musician. He played in the 70s jazz funk band Brick. Sleepy will talk to us about it after the break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guests are Big Boy and Sleepy Brown. Big Boy is an MC, half of the acclaimed rap duo Outcast. Sleepy Brown is a singer, songwriter, and producer. He's a member of the production team Organized Noise. The two of them have worked together on Outcast records and solo albums for three decades. Last year, Big and Sleepy released their first ever collaborative album. It's called The Big Sleepover. I'm talking with them from Stankonia, Big Boy's recording studio in Atlanta. When I was in college, my co-host on this show, Gene, I found out one day that his dad and mom wrote for the television show Hercules, The Legendary Journeys. Oh, and, wow. I know, right? And, yeah. and his dad was in the movie The Stuff, that one, and Chud. He was in Chud, too. I remember The Stuff. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. Yeah. And. I was from, like, he was from L.A. where, you know, his neighbor was Brian Cranston. Like, he knew people in show business. You know what I mean? Okay. Right. I was from San Francisco. Outside of, like, one of Bobby McFerrin's kids went to my preschool. I had never met anyone in show business in my entire life. You know what I mean? Right. And just hearing that my friend Gene's dad and mom wrote on this television show, I mean, not even with apologies to Hercules, The Legendary Journeys and Gene's parents, not even a good television show. Right. Blew my mind, right? Right. right? And I wonder what it was like for you, big boy, when you guys hooked up with Organized Noise, and not only were they really in the record business, even though they were recording in a, a basement and you were hanging out with them at a beauty shop, but that Sleepy's dad was in a great, famous band with hit records, Brick. How, how did I feel to know that? Yeah. I mean, I knew about it, but I just, I didn't know the magnitude of what it was um, at first. And then, you know, then I discovered that he and I were both born and for, was from Savannah, Georgia. And then to dig deep further, like my family knew his family, you know what I'm saying? So the, the ties were, were really solidified. It's a common, it's like fate almost, you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Did you feel that way, Sleepy? You're not in your head. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, my father, that whole thing, you know, we all, you know, my brothers all respected that and loved the fact that I came from that, you know what I'm saying? Uh, as far as being big, you know what I'm saying, like, both of us coming from Savannah, you know, over time, us learned about each other. It wasn't like when we first got together, it took time for us to kind of hang and really get to know each other. And then, you know, more respect came in. So, you know, as far as I've always been proud of my dad and I've always been proud of the fact that we came from Savannah and my dad was kind of a prodigy when he was younger because he put a record out in his younger days when he was in high school out there. And, uh, 
you know, he wanted a better a better uh, way of getting into the music business. So moved me and my mom to Atlanta and, you know, saying started performing on Camelton Road at Marco's and with SOS Band and all. That was like the hub for Atlanta back then. So to hear that and then, you know, our generation is kind of the same. You know, you know what I'm saying? We all, you know, will perform at uh, Yin Yang's and everybody be there joy and, you know, the whole community of musicians at that spot. So it kind of reminded me of being like, back in the day with my dad and them, you know what I'm saying? Because, you know, it was the same thing. You know, Cameron Road was lit back then, you know what I'm saying? All the bands that blew up in the 70s and 80s came from, from Atlanta came from Cameron Road <laughs> performing. Did you like that your dad was a musician? Did you think it was cool when you were a kid? Hell yeah, man. Imagine being six years old and your dad has a number one hit and you never seen your dad perform and then you go to your first concert and all these people are going nuts over your dad that you didn't even figure out that they have a hit. You know, it's just, it was amazing, man. It, it made me feel like I had to do music. I wanted to carry on that whole tradition of what we had as a family. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I told my grandma when I first seen my dad perform that I want to be just like him. So from that day four, six years old, I knew I wanted to do music. I didn't care what nobody said. So that was my main focus. That's not always what I hear from folks who come on this show whose parents were especially musicians. Like, Mavis right. Staples loved pop staples, I'll tell you that. But, like, right. a lot of people with a musician for a dad, maybe they're better at music than they are at dad. Right. But I would say this. Like, I understood what was going on. I knew my dad had to be out of town to do shows. I knew my dad had to be in the studio. I wanted him to do that. You know what I'm saying? So it was never for me to think like, oh, my dad not here or nothing like that. I knew what my dad was doing, you know what I'm saying? And I respected it because I knew that was his job and he loved it. And I love music, so I always understood that and never fought him for, you know, not being around as much or anything like that. To, to piggyback off what you said, I, I can say, like, the challenge and, and the accomplishments of, of being a father and a musician, when you can achieve that balance and, and raise kids to be productive citizens, yeah. that's bigger than any record you can ever sell. You Absolutely. know what I mean? And I'm blessed to have been able to do that with my children and to have them all carve their own paths and just been there the whole way. You got to be inclusive. You know what yeah. I mean? Like bring them on the tour bus, yep. make all the piano recitals, even if you got a show that night, you know what I mean? The chorus rehearsals, the football games. Oh, well, yep. um, that's what being a dad is all about. You know what I'm saying? And so that's a great feeling to not yeah, just kind of that's back. one thing I can say about Big. Like, all these years, man, with him on the road and stuff, man, it was nothing for him to bring his kids on the road. It was nothing for him to, you know, even stop a tour to go, you know, and take care of his kids. So, if anything, he's <laughs> Big is probably the best father I've ever oh, seen in the music business. I because I've it, never man. seen anybody that will really, you know, make sure he takes out time to be for his kids. You know what I mean? Because this music business, man... It could get you locked up. You can finish one tour and they could be like, yo, I know y'all want to go home, but we got a whole other tour you got to do. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You're like, well, wait a minute. I don't been out for four months. You know what I'm saying? So, dude, for him to juggle that and know how to work that is incredible. I've always admired him. And in some cases, it's helped me be a better father to my kids when I would see him do certain things. Oh, man, that's sweet as hell. Oh, man, you're the best, bro. You're the best. <laughs> you, bro. I look up to you, little bro. Hey, man, as well as I look up to you, too, brother. That's Absolutely. Now, that's love. love. Yep. All right, in the interview, we out. For <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, Sleepy, what was it like when you were a kid 
to start with seeing your dad as like a musician making hit records, right? Like right. Daz, Ain't Gonna Hurt Nobody, those are like big hit records. Absolutely. And those came out when you were, as you said, you know, you were like a little kid then. And old enough to remember, but young. And then see what it's like. I don't know how long your dad continued to be a professional musician, but like seeing what it's like to be somebody that had hit records and is just a working musician doing that kind of stuff. Like, what was it like to see that when you were, you know, 16 or 14 instead of six? Uh, it was great. By the time I was uh, 15, 16, Rick was pretty much like, the records weren't selling as great and everything. But my dad continued to do music and he played at clubs and stuff because he's a musician and he loves to, you know, he loves to play horns and stuff like that. So what it showed me was that everything can come down. And, you know, it's supposed to teach you a lesson, but at the same time, you still have to go through a lesson to learn it yourself. You know, I could have took all I seen from my dad and, and learned from that, but of course I didn't. I was too busy seeing the stardom in them. I didn't care if they ever sold another record. You know what I'm saying? They had five hit albums. You know what I'm saying? So to me, it was just kind of like, you know, you have to learn your mistakes on your own. That's the only way you can move forward as a human. So to me, watching them at that time, it didn't bother me. I knew it bothered my dad, but. You know, I always had faith in him, and and I always promised myself that if I made it, I was gonna put him on some of my records. I was gonna make sure he kept working. You know what I mean? So, and it worked out that way. What were you playing when you were a kid? I was playing. My dad bought me a a drum set at uh, my tenth birthday, and my grandmama, his mother, my grandma, she passed away, and she she taught me how to play organ. She was an organ player in church, and. uh, when I was little, she had a little letter sitting on top of the organ in the house and would teach me chords and, you know, all that good stuff. So, you know, I felt like my family, my, my dad's side of the family was training me because everybody on my dad's side, all my uncles, aunts, everybody knew how to play an instrument. Everybody knew how to play horns, drums, guitar. Everybody knew how to play everything. So I just felt like I was in training, you know what I mean, for my grandma because my grandma would teach me in a fun way, but she was teaching me how to play organ and piano and stuff. Did you want to rap? Nah, I didn't want to rap till I heard uh, Rap of Delight, but <laughs> <laughs> me, I grew up backstage in a funk era, bro. I saw Cameo, I saw Confunction, uh, Commodores. Man, I seen everybody. And me and Jermaine Dupree kind of grew up backstage because his dad was my dad's number role manager. So, you know what I'm saying? I grew up in the funk era. That's what I knew. That's why they call me P-Funk when it comes to doing music organized. I'm more funk than anything else. You know what I mean? So... I remember one time I wanted to rap, and I told Ray, my partner, I said, Ray, you know, I think I want to rap. He said, well, let me hear something. And I did. He said, man, don't you ever rap again in your life. (laughs) And I said, thank you, brother, (laughs) for believing in me. You know what I'm saying? So it made me turn back to singing. (laughs) Damn. Yeah, he he pretty hard. Did your family get that you wanted to make rap records? Yeah, I mean, when I played my first... The first song I ever played for my dad, it wasn't really Players Ball. I played um, 
that's when we did Society of Soul first album because I didn't really know if he would get me doing, you know, hip hop. So I kind of waited until he, he knew what I was doing and he heard Outkast, but I wanted him to hear me do some funk music because I really wanted to make him proud. You know what I'm saying? So when he first heard Pushing by Society of Soul, he was like, whoa, like he was, he was so impressed. Him and Reggie, guitar player for Brick, rest in peace, Reggie. So, you know, for me, man, I just wanted to make him proud of me doing what he did. So it was more about letting him hear me sing and do funk music, you know what I mean? To let him know that funk is still alive and I'm out here, you know what I mean? Let's hear a little bit of Society of Soul. So, you mentioned Players Ball, Sleepy. Yes. That was the first Outcast single. I yes. think kind of an unexpected hit. I mean, I, I hope that you guys expected it to be a hit because you hope for all of your work to be successful. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But a big hit right. record that was originally on a Christmas compilation. Yes, sir. And you sang on the record, Sleepy. Were you a singer at the time? Like, did you think of yourself as a singer? Yeah, cause we uh we had a group a singing group way before called You Boys, so yeah I I always feel like I could sing I, I didn't feel like I was the greatest singer but I feel like I could carry a tune I, I feel like I could sing like my dad <laughs> you know what I'm saying Great. so when we first heard Players Ball Ray did the beat and uh, you know Rico was standing there Rico started quoting like man Kellex the scene was thick and started doing all that stuff it gave me an idea of going oh okay seventy seven Seville L dog. Them but them blacks, all the players, all the hustlers. I'm talking about a black man having him. So, you know, me being a fan of Curtis and us working with Curtis Mayfield and him, you know, feeling like we're family, it was easy to, you know, I felt more comfortable singing like that. You know what I'm saying? So, I knew I could sing. I knew I wanted a great singer, but I knew I could carry a tune and I knew I could do that hook. That was true to the beginning, man. I, I didn't really think I would get that much attention from singing that hook, but I, I, I actually did. Now, everything they really start looking at me until we did So Fresh, So Clean. That's when they start saying, oh, okay, that's sleeping. What What do you remember about cutting Players Ball, big boy? I remember them telling us, hey, man, finally, they're going to give y'all a, a single deal, and we got the opportunity to to make us a song we were like yes and they was like it's gonna be on the Christmas album we was like no I'm tired <laughs> it was like they're trying to end our career before it even starts right so <laughs> us being the smart uh, oh, gentleman on. tell me the name of the, the original song not before it was played ball the TLC song no 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 the Socks and Draws oh yeah it was called Socks and Draws at first so <laughs> so right yeah, Christmas it was called Socks and Draws yeah yeah yeah, yeah. We, we just said okay we're just gonna talk about what we do on Christmas at the dungeon, which was, you know, we just made music and it was like another day for us because we was, you know, all focused on 
making the best music possible. You know what I'm saying? So we just, you know, did what we did. And it was like, man, one of the best Christmas songs ever next to the Temptation Silent Night. Yes, sir. Okay, my day is ruined. This is ridiculous. I'm getting serious. I'm getting curious because the house is smelling sick. The shitless odors. I make no wishes because I'm out and folk folks in the back. Getting tipsy off the knock and heavily blitzing on the eye out. So they have an obsession in my backseat. They pass some words and run them verses because it's in the air. I hit the ball. Yep, so every, every time Christmas rolls around, it's like this outcast was a gift to the world. And it was a gift from the most high for us to even to break past that because the song was like, Six, seven weeks at number one on the rap charts. And then when it came past Christmas, LA was like, oh man, we gotta, let's, let's uh, restructure it. Take out Christmas, put all day and day, take the sleigh bells out. Yep. And we just gonna <laughs> let it ride. And we did that, did the players' ball reprise and, yep. and, and Sleepy set it off. And, and the rest is history, man. Yeah, blessings, man, blessings. Sleepy, you said you were talking about Curtis. I think you were referring to Curtis Mayfield. Yes, sir. Who was, of course, famous for his falsetto singing. Yes. Organized Noise produced some records with him. Yes, before he passed. Did you know him already when you when you were, uh, you know, doing an impression of him on that record? No, actually, uh, no, I was kind of nervous, man, because uh, we were getting ready to do his last album before he passed, and uh, I'm in the studio, and we're at Kurt time, which we were uh, written out and working on uh, Goody Mob and Society Soul at the time, and uh, working on Outcast 2, Benzo Beamer. And yeah. so... I'm sitting there, I'm really nervous. So he comes in, they, they you know, set him up in the mic, and I'm sitting in the uh, sound booth, and I'm just sitting there twiddling my fingers like, uh-oh, what's the first thing he going to say? <laughs> so he gets on the mic, he's like, Sleepy, I'm really digging what you're doing on the outcast, keep it up. I was like, oh, beep, and blew my mind, bro. I was like, I can't believe Curtis Mayfield just so I could sing like him. So, you know, from there on, I started doing more hooks like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it was a blessing, man. Curtis was such a sweet soul, man, such a nice guy, man. And um, I was, it, we were very fortunate to work with him and do a couple of songs w with him before he passed. He had already had his accident, right? Yeah, yeah. He was already in the, um, you know, they wheeled him in on, a, on a, like a bed and uh, kind of propped him up to sing and stuff. And, you know... He was he was doing it, man. You know, it was kind of hard for him to catch his breath at time, but he was he was on it. I mean, the one thing about the work that you did with him and that entire album is, it is impressively good. <laughs> like, thank you. Man. It we really so it too. really holds up for a record by a sixty five year old man, uh, or right. old Curtis was at the time, who had been in a really major accident and terrible accident, man. You know, was like all those pieces really came together in a pretty remarkable way. Yeah, yeah, we were really happy with the uh, the end results of that project. what you guys were doing right at the very beginning trying to figure out what a rap record from Atlanta 
that was a national record could be? Like what that meant? We actually, honestly, we were just doing us in the dungeon, man. Right. We, knew, we knew it was gonna be, it was gonna be bass heavy. It definitely was gonna be funky because the, the basis of all our music has been funk. You know what I'm saying? Right. And it had to be supreme lyrically impressive. You know. Yes, sir. So we really just sharpened our craft all them years on them steps in the dungeon just to be able to be prolific at this. Yeah. We're hearing about the dungeon a lot. Can you describe physically what the dungeon was? The dungeon was a house where we all stayed. It was Rico Wade. He stayed there with his mom and his two sisters. It's like a two-bedroom house, but there's a, a like a living room area where we all had sleeping bags. There were tattered sofas with nails poking out of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you had Outkast, Goody Bob, Organized Noise, and a host of others like just it's like a never-ending slumber party. Yeah. A never-ending sleepover. Yeah. I want to call it that. And we were just night and day creating music, writing, yep. producing, like, you know, sharing food off of one plate. You know what I mean? Like the house smell of dank. Yeah. Real. <laughs> one thing we didn't have a shortage. We had a shortage of food, but we never, never had, had a shortage, shortage of weed. weed. Never. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We always had that. We always had that. I don't know where we go to get all this. Too, man, we might be hungry as hell, <laughs> we'll man. We'll be starving. And just smoking. No, you're going to get the munchies and still smoke. Still smoking. Yeah. What did his mom and sisters think about all this? Me and Miss Wade, like to this day, we just went to her, what she do, 70th birthday party? Yeah, 70th birthday. She, she had it like a, maybe a couple a couple months ago. The most kind, yeah. open-hearted woman to let all these dudes in oh, the house. Yes. And you have two teenage daughters in there who went to high school with, with, with me and Dre, actually. Uh, Rico's oldest, the older sister did. Me and her used to catch the bus to school together. But to have that much trust with all these guys in the house with you and your girls, and she believed in us. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And if it wasn't for Beatrice Wade, we wouldn't even be here, man. So would. Not, not in this capacity like this. Yeah, not she, at all. She kept, she kept the whole family under one roof. Yep. And never, we couldn't go in there and, and, and go in that bathroom most of the time. Yeah, couldn't do you know that. It was only one bathroom. It was bath. only one bathroom with three only women and, and, and 12 guys. So, yeah, like, so, you know. it was a whole bunch of pissing on the side of the, uh, the, the golden <laughs> go-rodge. Yeah, but yeah, she let us do it, man. Yeah, man, I love Miss Wade. Yep, and then later on, it was crazy. She became my kid's nanny. My she used to keep my kids for the longest until they got like in middle school. Oh yeah, so well, they yeah. still she, call she her granny. Like, she's like the grandma to yeah. my to my children. Like and everybody, 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 kids, everybody you know she I mean? she watched all our kids. All of them. <laughs> I interviewed uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis six nine months ago. And they're just delightful guys. And yeah. one of the stories they told me was when they first moved out to L.A. after they had gotten kicked out of Prince's band, you know, they were working on a record that became a hit record, but they didn't know that yet. And they went through a solid, like, year where they had no money at all, like, literally no money. And they, one of the things they told me about was getting together there. I can't remember. They, had, they knew the specific amount of money they had to get together to go to church's chicken and buy this bucket of chicken that they went and eat for the rest of the week. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> that was the oh, yeah. specific food that I read you guys talking about, <laughs> getting all your money together to go get. It was from from the gas station, the sit-go down the street. It was like a little Italian like bodega and a, a sit-go gas station. They yep. used to have this this dish called a spaghetti special. Yes, sir. And it had about four meatballs on it. Yep. <laughs> it was affordable. <laughs> You have four guys 
split one meatball a piece. <laughs> don't get all the sauce. Don't, don't try get to get all, all the noodles. All them noodles. And noodles, and then we'll put it on the paper plate, and we'll, we'll break down one plate like that. So every time we got about five or six dollars, we knew we had dinner. Yeah, they also had the little pieces down there. They had a the euro. Yeah, down the euros. Yeah, euro good. And we always <laughs> used to uh, some of our uh, homegirls would come over like Naja and Tammy and them, and we would talk to them in the buy some rally burgers, which was ninety nine oh, cents. Yeah, rallies, yep. So they would give us like you know what I'm saying five dollars. <laughs> yep, rallies. <laughs> Rallies, Everybody give a rallies burger. Rallies, bud. That, that's where that song came from. Yeah, bro. Oh, they're getting fat. Yeah, we're getting fat. But hey, look, I'm going to tell you something. Those were kind of like the best times to me because everybody was so hungry and we were so eager to want to make it that, you know, everybody was just there, man. Surviving. Surviving together. And it was just brotherhood. And I look, we never had a problem at the house with nobody coming over there trying to talk, no start, no crap. Because, you know what I'm saying, it was a house full of us. Yeah. So, yeah. you know what I'm saying, all we did was work, man, and I love those moments. You guys recorded in the basement of that house, and it was an unfinished basement, right? Like a dirt floor. We didn't really record down scratch there. Scratch vocals, maybe. Yeah, we might have did scratch vocals, but really it was more of a pre-production thing. Like, yeah. we would work on the beat, and they were right down there, you know what I'm saying? But every maybe every once in a while, we might record vocals, but... Really, it was more of us just working on beats, them writing their thing. We'll listen to everything, and then we'll say, okay, well, we got Bobby Brown Studio, which is Stankonia now. We have, uh, you know, we're going to be there this weekend, or we'll be at Doppler, or we'll be at uh, Southern Dragon. Nights. Purple Dragon. Purple Dragon, Purple yeah. Dragon Studio. Yeah. You know, all these other little small studios. Those are where we really recorded vocals at, because, you know, we couldn't truly record vocals at the dungeon because they wouldn't really be no good. You know, we had like a little six-track uh, six task cam. They could record vocals, but it didn't sound, you know, professional. It didn't sound top-notch, you know what I mean? So we would just, it was more of a pre-thing down there. Where would the beats come from, Sleepy? I mean, there was there was three of you, right? plus all these other dudes. You got Outkast and Goody Mob and everybody else coming through and, and sleeping in sleeping bags upstairs. Right. So, like... Was it somebody would bring in a loop or or somebody? No, nah, that was in that a- was truthfully in the beginning that was all Ray because Ray and Rico were crate diggers, you know what I'm saying? So they would go digging crates all day, just listen to records all day and get little snare kicks, you know. And so it all started from listening to records. Like Ray introduced me to the sample world. I came from the funk world. He introduced me to the sample world as far as showing me how everybody was using James Brown. Funky Drama, all these records that I didn't know came from James Brown at the time. You know what I'm saying? But Ray used to walk around with this briefcase, man, this old briefcase that had just about 500 cassette tapes. And all of them had some label, James Brown Snell, the Blackbirds. Uh, you know what I'm saying? He just had all these little records he had that he could sample from. So that's where it came from. Did you guys at that time think... It's our job to do something that is different from the stuff that's on the radio right now. Were you like, we're just going to do us? Or was it like, we need to do something that is not like this other stuff? I would say the first album, we wanted to make sure that we could get on the radio. So I would say the first album was more of a commercial thing that we we were shooting for. But as far as the growth of Outkast, that's when it started being like, we ain't got to do this. Shit. We can do our own. Shit. I mean, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. I got, I got a little into it right there. But just yeah, for the record, s- that was Big Boy who gave the uh, the no swear words glare. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't me. You know, you do that. Don't know what you say. <laughs> but yeah, 
as the growth of Outkast, that's when, you know, they became producers and started feeling like that they could do their own sound and don't have to, you know, compare themselves to the radio. People would listen to them even if it wasn't on the radio. I mean, I think, Big Boy, if Outkast hadn't made all the amazing records that it made, just that famous The South Has Something to Say moment was like profoundly transformative in hip hop, right? It was like, we're not just a second rate version of the East Coast or the West Coast. This is its own thing. Yeah. We are our own thing. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. It's like this though. I'm tired of folks, you know what I'm saying? The closed minded folks, you know what I'm saying? It's like we got a demo tape and nobody wanna hear it, but it's like this the South got something to say. That's all I got to say. It was like, you know, that moment of just that feeling not accepted at an award show fully appears and you win. It just put the jumper cables on our back, you know what I mean? And we went in the cocoon and made AT aliens. They created a monster. They did. You know what I'm saying? And by Big and them saying that, Big and Dre saying that on national TV, it woke Atlanta up. After that, everybody in Atlanta started doing something. Well, not started doing something, but really wanted to prove that Atlanta was that thing. So everybody got to work, which was awesome. We'll finish up with Big Boy and Sleepy Brown after a quick break. In just a minute, we'll hear about the pleasure they get from collaborating after all these decades. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, I'm Biz. And I'm Teresa. And we're the hosts of One Bad Mother, a podcast about parenting. Parenting is hard, and we have no advice. But we do see you doing it. Honk if you like to do it. (laughs) Didn't we have a bumper sticker a while back that was like, honk if you did it? That's what it I was. I think it was honk if you're doing it. <laughs> Why did we not ever make this? Those we did the make them. I did think we? they're still in the Max Fun store. <laughs> honk, honk. You're doing it. <laughs> Thanks, Biz. So are you. Each week, we'll be here to remind you that you're doing a good job. You can find us on MaximumFun.org. Honk, honk. Toot, toot. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, we're finishing up my interview with rapper Big Boy and singer-songwriter and producer Sleepy Brown. The two have been collaborating for decades. They just worked on their first album together called The Big Sleepover. It's out now. Let's get back into our conversation. You guys have been doing this together for so long. What's the same and what's different when you go into the studio now as, you know, grown men with grown children? Well. We don't have to worry about what we're going to eat. <laughs> right that's, 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 that's first. And, like, it's a never-ending process. You know what I mean? Like, even if we are not recording, we're always stockpiling ammunition. If it beats or just pieces of verses and hooks and song ideas. So when we do come in, like, we have so many tracks to choose from. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I kind of keep it in my phone. Like, a, just a playlist of, like, unreleased songs that I kind of just really like. And I'm like, man, we need to do this one. Like, some songs, like, say, for instance, Can't Sleep Out, the Big Sleepover album. I've, I've had that beat for, like, eight, nine years. You know what I mean? Sometimes you got to let it marinate a little bit. So there's no shortage of music. It's just, like, the vibe and what are we talking about on this particular song. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. 
Take two of these and hit me in the AM. A true MC when a super singing, banging on wax, cause they really out your plans. Slap pie, I didn't wake them up. No debate, hundred dollar do rap, pie made for the way. One of the things I love about hearing you talk about making records now, big boy, is that I so often hear how much how much pleasure you take from craft, like from being a craftsperson, like refining what you're doing and exploring. And those are kind of like grown up things like 18 year olds want to flip over tables, which is also great. Right. But like, there's a lot of people who enter middle age and lose interest. And I can tell that your interest is every bit as keen. Like you just love to find nooks and crannies and, and refine what you're doing. Yeah, just like I, I am the music. The music is me or us rather. Like, so like I said, it's recreational. Like I don't have to do this. Like I, I love doing it. And yeah. the thought of creating a new groove or riding home to a brand new song with a little piece of verse on there and just excited to get home and play it on the big speakers and come back in the studio the next day to finish it. Yeah. It's like a treasure hunt almost. Absolutely. And when you finish that song, it's like you unlock the map to the next level. You know what I mean? Right. It's, it's exciting. Sleepy, do you remember a moment in making this record where you felt like you'd unlocked something? I kind of felt like that when we sat on the bus and said we we're going to do an album together because I knew um, it was going to be something special because it was just like time for it. You know what I mean? And um, so while we are doing the album, I basically was just like, you know what? Because usually on the album, I give a, you know, a lot of my thought into it. Which I did with this album, but I really kind of just sat back and let little bro. And I was just like, you know what I'm saying? I'm just going to sit here, let little bro tell me what we, you know what I'm saying? Because I felt like his ear was more to the streets than mine. Like, I could do funk and R&B all day, you know what I'm saying? But I wanted to make sure, he wanted to make sure that it was a great mixture on this album between hard and, and love music. So, <laughs> sultry. Sultry soul, you know what I mean? So, for this album, I really... Just sat back, man, and let little bro drive. You know what I'm saying? And then when he was tired of driving, he's like, I, I, I drive a couple of hours, so I got in the driver's seat. You know what I mean? That's kind of how it went. Yes, sir. And we finally made the trip. Big, was there a moment for you that you were thinking of a, a time when something clicked in making this record? Something caught you by surprise? I think when we first, like, when Can't Sleep came up on Shuffle when we were on the tour bus, and it was like, this was just when we said, okay, we're going to do the group. And the sample, can't get to sleep, get to sleep. We're like, oh, there it is. Yeah. And it was knocking. Yeah. And so we couldn't get wait to get back home to record it. And then when we started recording it, it was like, man, that's that's it right there. That's it. And then I think the next moment was when we did Intentions. Yeah. Yeah, that, how that came about. Yeah. It was just organically created, never genetically modified, yes, right sir. here in Stankonia. Yeah. Just vibing out to Ray was just programming something and then CeeLo was in here, and yeah. he started saying something, and then Sleepy got in there, and, and then I just went and did my thing, and it's just, how that song came together was just great. The progression yeah, it was of it really was, was awesome. Yeah, it was so smooth. Well, guys, I'm really grateful to you for taking this time. I've loved and admired your music for so long, so it's really nice to appreciate get to talk it, man. to you. Keep making you. records. I'll keep jamming them. I really appreciate it. Appreciate right, it, brother. We'll do. We'll do. All right. All right. Now I'm screaming Big Boy and Sleepy Brown. Their album is called The Big Sleepover. It's a ton of fun. Go get it. 
That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where it is 89 degrees today as we record this. Holy mackerel, it's February, Los Angeles. Get your act together. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer is Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Special thanks this week to Renegade El Rey for holding down the board at Stankonia while I talk with Big Boy and Sleepy Brown. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation, recorded by the group The Go Team, thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. Bullseye is on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can follow us in any of those places. We share our interviews there, and you can do the same. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.